Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of long-form conversations with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso, thank you for being here. Since we're currently at the Toronto International Film Festival, this episode is a bit shorter than usual this week. Call it a festival episode or something. I recorded this conversation with someone who has repeatedly saved my ass in journalism, Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune. It was recorded earlier this week outside of his scenic balcony in Toronto. From afar, you can vaguely hear people in the streets walking by, cars zooming, sirens. While it's a shorter talk, I think we cover a fair bit of ground, including his days on At the Movies with Roger Ebert, then Richard Roper, then A.O. Scott, working as one of the few standing print newspaper film critics, and writing culturally as a white man in his 50s as things seem to change. That last part seems a bit harsher than it actually is. There's more to be said about Michael. I could go on for days, really. If you ask enough people about him, you'll start to hear a certain trend. That is, Michael is one of the nicest guys around. And it's true. He's just a stand-up guy from top to bottom, whose generosity has meant the world to me. So anyway, we'll be back next week with a long conversation with Steve James, the documentarian behind Who Dreams, The Interrupters, and more. But for now... Here is Michael Phillips. The 
You know, I've, I've only written about two things in my life, theater and movies. And I've so been Golden able to, Age was characteristically... It's a Bronze Age, and, and uh, <laughs> I think I would call... And, you know, I've written... I've been fortunate enough to kind of zigzag back and forth between theater and film my whole life. And, um, yeah, I've worked for six different papers. That, And I was lucky that there were six different papers to work at in different cities. And... Um, I mean, I mean, especially when I come out of college in uh, the early '80s in Minneapolis, that was there was just a tremendous amount of opportunity for writing if you were writing about movies or theater, which is crazy. There was all this freelance opportunity, you know. I mean, there was a, for a time there were four daily newspapers, two weeklies, three monthlies. You'd have to be bad at writing to not get some work as a freelancer. <laughs> so it was it was it was a miracle. But now the game has changed. You look like you're crying over there. No, I'm. Is, is I that, have an eye infection, which oh. I've actually had sick uh, off sorry. and on. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that I, I made, am, made fun of. You. I mean, I'm crying on the inside. You know? mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I do have. A, I don't want to talk too much about the grotesquerie of my uh, my my eye infection. But uh, what would you have done if you entered the landscape now? Hmm. I want one joke answer, one serious answer. <laughs> um. If I were here, I am coming up. I'm say Sam's age, 22, looking looking to solidify my 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 lot in yeah. life and, and my my pursuits as a critic and a journalist and a film fan. I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'd have a different attitude about the 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 ease with which a lot of people I know pursue every side of every fence when it comes to film in that they're they're writing uh, critical pieces here and there maybe they're not staff but they're they're active really engaged freelancers all over the place they're also programmers for festivals um, you know that that's that's foreign to my experience because I again it's it's I had the good fortune to actually uh, be employed by a lot of different media organizations to write about what I wanted to write about, and they actually let me write how I wanted to write, and uh, that's that's that, that's not a luxury that a lot of people today have. So uh, I, I have a lot of seriously a lot of survivor's guilt at this point about even having this work because so many good people have had their jobs kind of shot out from under them. You know how it is. Why do you think they've kept you? Why they? Why have they kept me? Yeah, I mean, you know, I try to. I try not to waste people's time too much with what I write. Uh, um, so it's efficiency. Efficiency. Partly, it's partly. Um, you know, I think it's. I, I've always been a specialist, but I've had two specialties to fall back on: <laughs> theater and film. Yeah, and that's really saved my ass. Right. Uh, just personally, because because you started doing theater, that, started that, doing theater. The um, well, in movies, first my first real uh, paid work was as, as one of the film critics at the Weekly in Minneapolis, City Pages, which is still in existence. And I was I was writing about film for them when I was still in college, uh, back in '83, I think. And I, The Big Chill was the first film I reviewed for them, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, didn't like it, and uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but then yeah, I for the for various newspapers, I was writing more about theater than film, and I was the full-on theater critic at places like 
San Diego Union Tribune, Los Angeles Times, and then the Chicago Tribune. By the time I got to Chicago, I was, you know, I had just turned 40, and I, I talked to the editors fairly early on. You know, it was like maybe two, three years into the job, and, I, and it's a wonderful place to cover theater because it's, right. it's fantastic world-class theater, right? But I really was burning out on the subject, and I, I was... This is around what age? Uh, I was in my early 40s, and this would have been like I got that job at two, in 2002. Okay. And I talked to him, and I said, look, I'd love to get back to film at some point before I turn 50. Uh-huh. Um, and it turned out they were keen on making a change, so it took a couple of years to work out. Um, and uh, But I was pleased they, they were interested. And, uh, and again, that, that really saved me because I was so eager to get back to film at that point. At what point in the line did you meet Heidi? Heidi Stevens, God, my favorite writer at the Chicago Tribune, also uh, uh, my third wife, uh, and by far the best. The um, uh, <laughs> uh, you, know, you know what's funny? I did not. Did she's your third wife. Yeah, yeah. What, what happened to the other two? Uh, well, they're alive and kicking. Um, uh, my first wife was uh, Ann Jarmish, uh, Jim Jarmish's sister. Uh, she was the art and architecture critic at the Dallas Times Herald, where I had my first full-time daily newspaper critic job really yes how just how how long have we known each other and this small is not, world right this has not come up once well you know there it is and then uh, uh my second wife uh, is a librarian uh in chicago now remarried uh andrea lenneberg uh and we met in la when i went out there for the Who job did the breaking there. off uh uh, the second one was mutual. Let's just say that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so then Heidi comes, I, and she like coworker at the paper. Um, one of my uh, an incredibly astute editor at, uh, of the Thursday Entertainment section on the town. She was also um, um, d- starting to really develop as a writer herself. And then it was so clear the minute she started writing more than she was editing that she should she was a born writer and right. I mean, a fantastic. And she's just she's a superb columnist and a great you know. And it turned out we were both um, we had both recently gotten out of um, you know less than terrific marriages and uh, and uh, uh, again my my good fortune <laughs> just to uh, get to know her first as a colleague then as a friend and and now as her as her husband. So. You've always mentioned good fortune to me, and I wonder is it are you being modest when you're doing that or is it? Are you just a lucky person? What do you What do you make of this? Um, I think we make. I mean, I don't like that that old cliche. You make your own luck, but I think um, I think any anybody's life is some sort of combination of skill and luck. You know, a little bit, and whether or not you're bouncing back from what you might consider bad luck. Um, you know, usually that's got some root in uh, in a choice you made or or a decision you could have you know taken a different direction. Um, and the important thing is just kind of like learn and move on, um, and be a human being about it, you know. And uh, I think I think the luck part, you know, it's I think just on paper, if I came out of college in the early 1980s and I had that many opportunities, and we all had that many opportunities to develop as writers at a young age when you're not very good and you need to just simply get the practice you know it's no different than any other field you know it's the same for actors you know they need a place to do it and that whether it's college summer stock you name it commercials you learn from it all right and um i had there were there were simply a, a, there was a wealth of opportunity 
then, and, and l- luckily I was able to capitalize on it. At what point in writing about film did you feel like you were hitting your stride? Hmm. Like, when you started, was there a year or a review even or a film that you're like, I know what I'm doing, I'm comfortable doing it, I know this is good work? Right, that's a good question. I'd say this about the third year, the second or third year at the Weekly in Minneapolis. This is the, my, in my first sort of period as a, as a film writer. I started. I never. I never liked that advice. You know, find your voice. What the hell good is that? You know, when people talk about developing your voice, yeah. that's that's that always seems like such a bullshit piece of advice. It's like this, it's the most non-specific, unhelpful, generic advice you can give anybody. <laughs> I, and by the way, I appreciate you never giving me that advice. I never. Well, yeah, I wouldn't encourage you anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I would. Uh, but sometime around the second or third year at the weekly, I had just written enough at that point. You know, a few dozen of maybe a hundred. You think, okay, then, okay, this one works. You go back and read it and think, well, that one's not bad. Now, why is that one a little better than this one? Right. And it's usually not a matter of anything other than specificity. You're, you're, you have, you're making your assertions and having your responses to something. Uh, complicated, simple, whatever. Love it, hate it, either way. In the middle, most of the time. Um, but you, you've, with, with certain reviews, they're just simply more compellingly argued or better, better told if they're kind of in story form or right. whatever. And and it's and it's because those details are in there that plenty of other reviews might be perfectly well written, but they're they're just. They just lack the detail that makes them really sing a year later when you reread it. Right. You said most movies, you're talking about reviews, you find yourself kind of in the middle in terms of negativity and positivity, right? No more than anybody else. I mean, sure. But But my point to this is what is different with you is that the job requires you to write about a lot of movies. A lot of movies. You, you review how, what six, seven a week? Yeah, fewer than that. But but you see six or seven a week, and maybe you're writing about let's say four or five. Okay, which is, that's more. That's more than most people who write film criticism. Yeah. I would say. No, it's not healthy. Yeah, not for sure. No, no, it's not healthy. So, how do you continue to make it interesting? Do, do you ever file something and you're like? I don't like the movie very much, but I don't hate it. I'm, it's like a yeah. sort of two, two and a half star movie. Right, right, right. There's a lot of them. And when you file those pieces, are you like, ah, I'm not proud of that? Well, they're hard to write. A good, an interesting mixed review is the hardest thing to write. And, right. And I think if you're intellectually honest, you're going to be writing a lot of them. If you see 100 movies, let's just take a round number, 100 movies a okay. year, uh, two a week, 100 movies a year, 20 of those are going to really be maybe 15 20 of those really good you know like like full price absolutely happy to recommend them what you know at least, at least for yourself 20 or 30 out of 100 really not very good not worth it even after two beers on the couch right. you know just it's not meh. that leaves about 45 55 somewhere in the middle between inspiration and disaster right <laughs> It's true. I like that spectrum, by the way. It's inspiration, disaster, and and I mean, how often do you come out of a movie, however you see it, and say it was okay? So that's, these are the movies I'm talking about. That's fifty percent right. of your year. Mm. I don't think I'm crazy. Well, I guess how do you not go crazy having to write? Yeah, so write many. Well, you have to seize what um, you have to seize in the review on what is the reason why 
it's that way. Why? If it's and there's many different kinds of mixed results. I mean, you, sometimes you get a very bad film that has one terrific supporting performer in it who's saving the movie's ass uh, or trying right. all the way through. Other films are much more kind of unif- uh, kind of just a uniform combination of you know uh, unambition, unambitious writing. Uh, kind of zero style direction and a medium good cat. You know what I mean? Like a more kind of uniformly eh experience. Uh-huh. Um, and that's a different kind of review. But you just have to kind of make sure that the reviews take the shape they should be taking, which typically doesn't it doesn't follow any kind of formula. But just you know, if if you want to, if there's one performance that's really only worth talking about in that film, go with that, lead with it, and mm-hmm. then. And then reread it on the first after the first draft and say, okay, now does this review need a little furniture, you know, just to kind of make it more of a review and less of a essay, you right? Know? Which is fine. Then you back in and you kind of think, okay, do I need a little more plot description, just enough not to mystify him, mm. and uh, uh, or do I need to unburden myself of, of of this plot description because any jackass can write a, pl- a plot description heavy review the one thing i think you're especially good at and, and someone who has read a lot of your reviews and it's sort of the thing that i think eber did well is that you're very good at one print and inches require you to be concise some that skill most people do not have yeah. in today's I, I count myself somewhere in the middle of that right second because you're concise, you're describing plot. The way you describe plot and your feelings, you kind of they're entwined. Yeah, well, I, I and that is it's hard to do. It's so hard to do, and yeah. I feel like one out of every five reviews, I kind of I do that. That's how that's about that's how I figure how often I hit it too. So ah, I, that's okay. Well, then I'm one out of every ten. Ten. Then. You're one out of you're every really five. more like one out of every thirty. Really. Yeah, yeah, that's no. fair. Now you're being fair. <laughs> I like the honest judgment. It's good. one out of ten. No, one out of five. Yeah. Um, it's hard because I, I find uh, reading plot summaries just like uh, they're pure, boring. They're, boring. They're boring. But if you can if you can get it in like that, that sounds wrong. But if you if you that was a weird joke. But it's just like if you get it right. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Sneak and, it in. Sneak it in. Sneak it in. Sneak it in. And and you don't want to make you don't want to make movies sound more plot dependent than they really are because if you grind through a lot of narrative rehash right, and, and review, that. you know, I mean, I mean, you see a movie like. American, like here at the festival, American Honey. Uh, if you see Tony Erdman, if you see uh, Things to Come, these are not movies crammed with conventional narrative incidents. You can get a plot for all those in a paragraph. Yeah, and then you can talk about all less, the interesting things. Even less. I mean, yeah. and right, and but it's like it's like a lot of things. You know, take care of that business when sure. you're when you're trying to deal with something else. You know. The concise part, did that help you when transitioning into doing at the movies? Ah, good point. It is, it, uh, that sort of thing does feed pretty well into short form radio and that sort of television work. Mm. Um, so it was you and Roper, you started coming on. Yeah, I filled in for Roger when, Roger he, was when he got sick. That was like 2007-ish? I think, yeah, right? I think so. 2007. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I all told I ended up doing about 100 episodes uh, with Roper. How was that? Great. It was, you know, I learned a lot from the format. It was like getting thrown in the deep end because there was very little prep. They were really, 
He had no idea if he, you know how Rogers' health would affect the show, how quickly he was coming back, whether he was coming back, whether or not he'd get his voice back. I mean, there, was, there were so many things up in the air. It was a really fraught time. But Roger, again, good fortune on my part, um, you know, was was very supportive of my work and he said, "Let's get him in and give it a try." And do you think um, you and Roper? got along like rapport did you have a do you think you had a good rapport yeah it was i mean i really didn't know what i was doing those early early episodes and because he's more i would say a tv personality than a yeah yeah i, I know he writes he, he's he's a hyphenate you know he's and he's you know he's good at a lot of different things and i did learn a fair bit from him in a in a big hurry uh, simply how to how to say the one thing you really need to say in response to what you just heard the other guy say, mm. um, what because you can't, you can't, you know, you have about sixty to ninety seconds of unscripted time, and you have to share that with somebody who's going to try to take two thirds of that ninety seconds. Right, <laughs> and um, you know, it's it's important to be a good listener, but very quick on your feet. Uh, and you know, sometimes those crosstalks they call them would devolve into a lot of overlap conversation that you know just sounded like we were on Fox News but but the good ones were uh, were dynamic uh, uh but but clear mm-hmm. you know but it came to an end i mean they, an end. they they decided okay well yeah, did, did yeah. They, what was the meet, what was the call was it they they said they came to you one day and they said we're not going to renew with well, you. Well, this is the, the, that's a different iteration. So later, no, not the A.O. Scott. I want to get to A.O. Scott thing. Yeah, but, yeah. But I'm talking about how did it go from at the movies to the Ben Lyons disaster oh God, I'd, have to, I'd have to go over my notes on that one, Sam. But but I think <laughs> I think I think uh, you know there was a you know I was on uh, for for the better part of a year. Richard Roper was alternating between me and uh, A.O. Scott, Tony Scott. Uh, as a partner, and then they decided, okay, we'll just finish out the season with Phillips. So we did that, and then at the end of that, I think the contract negotiations fell apart uh, with Richard, and um, and so then they decided, okay, clean slate, let's let's revamp the show. We'll we'll go with the, uh, Ben Mankiewicz, who's on TCM, uh, and Ben Lyons for a year. Uh, you know, and before that, there was people forget about this, but uh, uh, another old colleague of mine, Robert Wolanski from the Dallas Times Herald. Uh, when I mm-hmm. knew him, uh, the, the Observer, the Weekly, I think around this time, or else now he's with the Dallas Morning News. Wolanski was the for eight or ten weeks was the was the guy that R- Richard Roper was partnered with, and what, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. Give me an honest take on Ben and Ben. The Bens, yeah. I think that whole show was if they if they were going to really revamp it, they should have. That was a tentative halfway revamping. I think Ben Mankiewicz is more my speed, you know, and a, um, uh, a guy I really respect, and I think does a good job on Turner Classic Movies, which I've been lucky enough to fill right. in on, uh, uh, you know, a handful of times. Um, uh, but I, 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 my my real problem with at the movies is that. The format is so uh, tightly wound. There's just no time for uh, anything like a spontaneous thought for more than a sentence in any one direction, you know. Um, but I think when Tony Scott and I got on it, 
and we always thought we were only we only knew we were going to do 13 weeks and you just with television i think you just got to assume you're going to get your ass canned after x number of weeks period did you, know? you and tony go into it saying we're not getting renewed one year they we knew we had heard anecdotally that they had one more year to, to run out on the contract with the stations so we were we thought if we get a year we're lucky that show was good oh thanks uh, and I, I'm 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 a little obviously biased because I like both of you, but I don't know if it was great TV, right? But I know that it was at least engaging and interesting in a way that made me think about movies, which I know is the the point of that show, right? Right. So that's something. Yeah. Well, the again again we we by the midpoint of that our year on that show we we started getting a little more creative about like look let's not cover five movies this week we only have 22 minutes let's just do these this one and that one and then we'll do 10 minutes on the scorsese films that really mean something to us and those are the segments that people really like because they were a little longer they were much more uh, um well i don't know they were just they were just kind of more there were there there was more air to breathe in those segments right i think the one complaint people had with the show was that you and tony did not disagree enough i disagree (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm eating sushi. Um, I think that's maybe true. I think we're both, you know, we're both kind of, in some vague, in some sense, kind of over, our tastes overlap a little bit. I think there wasn't any, there wasn't the natural animosity between us that Roger and Gene Siskel had, uh-huh. where they were fierce competitors in the same market, and on some level really really didn't like each other and on some level really really loved each other right so i mean that's the cliche about roger and gene but uh, that was that was true and tony and i were much more kind of like friendly colleagues and and then for, we were got to be you know good pals that year um um but i think if you actually go back and count it up roger and gene didn't disagree as often as people think, sure. but, but they they had they always had they had temperamentally they were trying to find a way to disagree, even when they agreed. Hmm. And you guys didn't want to do. I that. don't know. It's it, there's only so much kind of fake TV stuff we could pull off. <laughs> Maybe if you liked Tony less, it would be easier. I tried to focus on everything I hated about him, but you know I just couldn't. He you know. seems like a nice guy. He's, he's a good guy. He stole from me. He stole. He would, from he, me. he would steal money. Yeah. Ah. I don't want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Let's. We can edit that part out. No problem. So, post uh, at the movies, did you think like you had had this chance on television, which would have been a different sort of format for you? Do you think, oh fuck, I'm not, well, I'm not going to do that again? I mean, kind of. Uh, did it not matter? It to was you? such a fluke that we both got this thing. You know, they fell in our lap. Here we go back with the fluke it's shit true. again. There was no audition. There was no nothing. You just get the. I mean, you know, it makes up the things. You know, things that drop out of the sky like that. How much do you think? Your good fortune is based on the fact that you are, at your core, despite being a sarcastic ass, a generally I'm good not, guy. I'm not. I, I I disagree with your characterization, but um, <laughs> comes from a place of love. Um, yeah, I'm. Mean, you know, I think I sure I'm a good guy. I try. That's 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 as much work as trying to be a good writer, you know, or a good critic. I mean, it takes it takes some work, but um, in what I what I appreciate is. The opportunity to get better at something you're interested in, and that's what I've always been. 
happy to pursue. You know, like with the te- with television, I, I, like I guest hosted uh, some uh, twenty six of these um, intros and outros for Turner this month in September. I think I think it just. Uh, you know, one one thing kind of led to another. Just it just took years and years in between. I did some theater in high school and in college, and a little bit afterwards. Somehow that gave me just a little bit more facility with reading a teleprompter and not not strangulating on it. Um, uh, so you can kind of take a skill you learn and then drop twenty years ago, and then suddenly it, it pays off. Like when Tony and I were on at the movies together, I was always better on the prompter than he was and he was always better off the prompter than I was huh. and so that was because uh, he simply had a very uh, sharp and cogent way of getting his thoughts together in a 50 to 70 second spiel than I did and you know that we never really talked about that but that uh, that was kind of clear to everybody I think that okay so and so is better on the prompter but you know this uh, so hopefully this between the two of them will get by that's right <laughs> yeah we well, did well while you while you lasted. We did okay for a couple of middle aged white guys. I mean, I mean, there was it was a ble- you know just that fact is a little like it. Yeah. You know, would I watch that show? Would I even watch two middle aged white guys sort of talking about movies in in a in a set that looked like the waiting room of a dentist's mm-hmm. office? You know, I, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> you know, you're, you're telling people you're almost daring people to watch at that right. point. Right. Do you think? I, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's something I did want to talk about. Do you feel, given the landscape of journalism, which is I think we're entering, at least in my generation, renting, entering a, a world where uh, there it's not mostly filled by white journalists, which is, I think, a, uh, a good thing, a yeah, great thing. Overdue. Do you what? How are you feeling about that as someone who is well, you're fifty five, fifty six, yep, white guy from Minnesota? Yeah. Although actually, Wisconsin born. Wisconsin born. Went to school in Minnesota. Yeah. Um. Do you feel like? Do you not feel part of the cultural conversation? How, 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 where is your Where is your place in it? I mean, that would absolutely. No, I know, I know, I know. Half of it, look again. Half of it you can do something about. Half of it you can't. I, I, I am I am the person I am with the um, with the um, within the context of my upbringing and my training, and I do come out of a. A, a time when they gave so little attention to diversifying any newsroom at all, you know, whether it's gender, ethnicity, or whatever. I mean, tastes, anything. It was a very monolithically white male world. Did you notice it back then? I did, because because if you're, as an editor, I was an editor at City Pages after I was a writer, you you heard it from your from your female writers. You know, you thought, "What the hell is going?" You know, with, with various legitimate complaints about, like, you know, the fact that they had to be fight to get the byline space that the other guys got, and um, you know, it, it, it just it's like it's like w- women everywhere. They have to work twice as hard to get half the opportunity. So it's, uh, and that goes for people of color for all kinds of. You know, questions of how to make a, a truly pluralistic, you know, newsroom, or, or right. you know, and uh, so that there's things you can do about that, and there's some things you can't do. What I can do as a as a critic today is make sure I'm not falling into the any old received notions about what does or doesn't work. You know, I have to I have to respond to the culture I'm in, and um, it does it does. 
you know, I'm constantly questioning my own perceptions. You know, the why. It's just every the word why. The question why is at the heart of all acts of criticism and whether or not you're trying to figure out why does this thing engage me? Why am I struggling to engage? Why do I always like that actress? Why, 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 why? Similarly, you have to always ask yourself, you know, why as a writer, why am I struggling with this lead? Why, why am I afraid that this uh, is falling into some sort of formula for me? Why, why? And if you just keep honestly hammering at yourself about this why, 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 you're, you get to the answers and, and that can, you can write your way through these, 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 uh, these questions that come up every week. This is good. Yeah, um, was, I thought that was really well put. That was well, well, yeah, well done. Yeah, you no, want to pat yourself on the back? No, I appreciate you not interrupting. That yeah, time. no, of course. Um, I was trying to find that email I sent you. I, I can't find it. I cannot find what it. What the hell? In here, it's an old, old email. But so, tell me your recollection of the email I sent you. I remember it vaguely. I emailed. Well, let's, let me hear yours. So, then. so I emailed you. It was on. See, in the, uh, I emailed you in high school. From like a Yahoo email account, and I and I and I led with, dear Michael, I'm sure you get a lot of these, so apologies for like you know the cliche whatever of me. I just assume out. you were another Nigerian prince looking for some. <laughs> and I was just asking for advice. I was asking for advice, and I and I, I thought well maybe he'll respond, and I don't even know how I found your email. I think it was just on the Tribune website. And I thought, hey, what, what the hell? I mean, I, well, what did I have to lose? I was a, a, a lonely sophomore in high school writing to you. You're a punk kid. Yeah. I, uh, punk no. kid. That's the first time I've been called a punk kid. Punk kid. I like that. And, so I, and I wrote back. You wrote back. Do you remember what you said? Dear Stan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Never had a loss for a joke. I think I had a few general pieces of advice mm-hmm. about finding a place to write. Yeah, yeah. Just treat it like continuing education. There's one line. Do you remember the golden line? Mm, no. You said, just remember to remember to be doing it better and more interesting than the jackass sitting next to you. Good. Good. I'm glad I had a high-minded piece of advice <laughs> like that. There are a lot of, you know, you can... You when can, I got that, I, I have to tell you, I got that and I'm like, oh, wow. He gave a not bullshit answer and like spent five minutes that day caring and i and i will say i'm getting like well i i really I'm, i don't know i mean i meant the world to me well, so thanks pal yeah no i was happy to do it i think i think i'm not i'm not joking when i say um you know there was something in the letter that i thought this guy's worth encouraging and uh but and i also think it's good to remind people that there's a lot of people who currently hold jobs or are kind of familiar you know very steadily working freelancers who aren't very interesting and our job is at least to and they're not doing the profession any service at all it's a disservice and it's up to all of us individually to kind of just reassert our worth every time we write the write the byline you what's know? the best piece of advice someone gave you hmm. and this could be writing love general life wisdom um, it probably goes back to my folks. I mean, they they were 
I don't even know if it was any one thing they said, but everything they did uh, when I was growing up was uh, was sort of leaving all this space and encouragement to, to follow what I wanted to do. I mean, if I wanted to see a movie up in Milwaukee when I was 12, they'd take me. If I wanted to see a movie in Chicago, you know, when I was 13, they would take me. When I was, uh, you know, if I was interested in theater, uh, you know, uh, you know, went out to New York a couple of times on different theater trips. I mean, with, with my folks, sometimes it's a family trip, sometimes just with one of them. That kind of encouragement, you know, that's, that's really a different form of advice. They're just saying, stay interested. Well, thanks. Yeah. And, Thank and, you, Sam. And, and uh, I'm, I'm glad they, they did that. All right. There's a good move on there. Thanks, man. Nice right. to talk to you. Well, there it is. You can read Michael each week on the new releases over at the Chicago Tribune. Also, as he briefly mentioned, he's hosting 26 films on Turner Classic Movies this month. So do be sure to check him out there. Lastly... A big thanks to Michael for taking the time to talk during the madness that is TIFF. If you've enjoyed this or any other episode of the podcast, as always, do be sure to consider giving us a review on iTunes. I know it's not exciting to do so. It even takes two or three minutes of your time, but it does help us reach new listeners. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app, If you want to drop us a line about anything, feel free to do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. Our theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna. Social media by Maria Mayella. The show is produced and edited by Corey Atad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.